Good afternoon, everyone. Hope you enjoyed your summer because it is officially over. <laughs> We're now in fall, full swing. You've had three full seasons of Leviticus so far. That's like two and nine-tenths more than most people ever have. <clears throat> and we're coming up on, we have after this week, two, well, we'll get, get through half of chapter 25 today, but then after this week, uh, we'll just have chapters 26 and 27, and then we're done. So what's going to happen, just to give you a heads up, is um, in, this is, let's see, we're in September, so October... Uh, we should finish Leviticus by October, um, bef- by the start of October. Probably then, I'm going to be gone for two weeks in November. Uh, I go to India every year, so I'm going back to uh, do some teaching over there. So for two weeks, two Tuesdays in November, I'll be gone. What we're going to do, instead of starting numbers and then having to take a two-week break and then doing another and then having a break for holidays, blah, blah, blah. What we're going to do is, starting in October, probably, we're going to do a couple of weeks from the course that I teach called Bible for the Rest of Us, which is like an overall look at Scripture, how to interpret it, why are there different translations, what's the whole message of the Old Testament, the New Testament, uh, what are some commonly misinterpreted or misunderstood passages. So we're going to kind of do some lessons from that course that I teach that can kind of stand alone each week. So we'll have different, it'll be kind of a different topic each week when you come in. And then in the new year, then we'll start up fresh and we'll start in the book of Numbers and pick up where Leviticus leaves off. So just giving you a heads up, um, it'll be a time too where you can invite, continue to invite friends, coworkers, people, and, and they can come without having to worry about coming in the middle of a study or anything like that. Uh, between now and the holidays. So just keep that in mind. That's what we'll be doing. And it's a lot of fun. I love teaching the course. And so it'll be cool to take some of the stuff from that course and bring it into uh, this study that we do together. But we're in Leviticus 25. We're at the tail end of the book. And this is the last section. And this section begins in a different spot than the one right before it. Uh, We've been getting this legislation and these... uh, guidances and this laws and things from God and periodically after he came down uh, after the tabernacle was set up at the end of Exodus God comes down and then he speaks to Moses from the tent of meeting and gives them all these laws and there's two narratives we saw in the whole book two little sections of judgment on um, people that are flagrantly violating God's law in his presence and then this last section it kind of puts it back in Exodus because the first word it says, the Lord said to Moses on Mount Sinai. So this is probably, I mean, the, the Hebrew word for on is also the word for in, by, near, among, to, to. Like it, it, there's some translations that so could be just God speaking to Moses near Mount Sinai, which is where Israel is camped. Or it could be God said this section that we're going to read on Mount Sinai to Moses. And this will be a way of kind of closing the book the way that it began, or the way that Exodus closed, which was um, God coming down from Mount Sinai. And this, theologically now, we're kind of going back up Mount Sinai. 
So regardless of the location, though, this is this is sort of a covenant section where God's giving some pretty severe and foundational covenant principles for his people that he wants them to embody. And the first one, the Lord said to Moses on Mount Sinai, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land, I'm going to give you the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord for six years. sow your fields and for six years, prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Do not reap what grows. Do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of your untended vines. The land is to have a year of rest. Whatever the land yields during the Sabbath year will be food for you, for yourself, your manservant, your maidservant, the hired worker, the temporary resident who live among you, as well as for your livestock and the wild animals in the land. Whatever the land produces may be eaten. So now God is extending this concept of Sabbath rest beyond people. Remember, Sabbath rest goes all the way back to creation. God himself participated in Sabbath rest. So that tells us something about the nature of Sabbath, that it's not just for rejuvenating a tired worker. It's not just for giving people a day off. There's a principle that's somehow embedded into creation of, of six and then one, six and then one, six and then one. And so one of the ways that Israel is going to remember this, in addition to their weekly keeping of the Sabbath, is that they're going to give the actual land a Sabbath. Now, later, when Israel gets driven out of the land, they get they get vomited out of the land, just like God said would happen to them. Uh, God will tell through the prophets, he'll say, you're going to you're out of the land so that the land can have its fullness of Sabbaths that you never gave it. In other words, the things that God commands Israel to do in this chapter, we don't have a lot of reason to uh, believe that Israel ever did In fact, we have good reason to believe that Israel didn't do most of what's in this chapter. And because of the later critiques of the prophets, that's what we see. But the point is that God's saying, look, the land itself, six years, you can tend it, you can grow your crops, you can sow, you can harvest, you can do all the stuff that agrarian societies do. Then for an entire year, you're not to touch it. Let it rest. That's to recharge the land. Now, now there may be some agricultural benefits. I'm not a crop scientist. I don't know if this helps land. Some have have said that it does, and some have said, eh, maybe. Regardless, that's not why God says it. Um, But there could be some benefit to letting the land rejuvenate its uh, levels in the soil and things like that. It could also be a time of letting the the wildlife kind of come back into its own, the wildlife that Israel would have hunted for game or you know the the that would have displaced as they spread out whatever is a chance for that to come back maybe um we do know that the one thing that this would require though of an agrarian society is full and total dependence on god this is the thing israel was entering into canaan and canaan was the land of fertility that's why god says a land flowing with milk and honey It's not just because the land was very rich. It was also inhabited and populated by people and their gods, all of whom were centered on fertility and blessing of agriculture and crops. The reason that Israel's neighbors, the Canaanites, sacrificed their children by burning babies alive was because they believed that would give them better crops. They believed if one kid dies, 
for the sake of the village and the whole village gets a benefit from it, then it's worth it. So anything they could do to appease their gods of the harvest, their gods of fertility, they were willing to do it to ensure a good crop. This is, this is so important, and we're, we're an urban society. You know, if I were in a little country church out in farm country, this might read different to the audience. But for most of us, we're city folk. Even if we come from some country stock, we're still city folk. We live here in Charlotte. You're in driving distance of this place, so you're not in the country. <laughs> um, so this doesn't have the impact that it would have on us. But to tell a farmer, hey, you know that thing you do that feeds your family? You know that thing you do that keeps you from starving every year? Yeah, don't do that for a year. See how that goes, right? See how they're likely they are to listen to that guidance. That's exactly what God is commanding of his people. Why? Well, there's an incredible missional element to that. The gods of fertility land require the blood of children to keep the crops growing among the Canaanites in their mind. All of a sudden, this rabble of slaves who have no, no background in agriculture, they were herders. They were slaves for 400 years, longer than America's been a country. And now they go from slaves who herd sheep to settling and planting and, and harvesting. So they don't know what to do. They're going to need all the local wisdom they can get. They're going to be like the pilgrims at the first Thanksgiving, right? Didn't know how to do anything, and so the Indians had to save them, show them how to plant crops that will grow. That's what they're expecting. But then all of a sudden, these Israelites, if they do this, God's saying they would come in and they, they would be blessed by this God who's not Baal, who's not Moloch, who's not Asherah, who's not any of the Canaanite deities. This God is not a God of fertility. He's not a God you worship through sex acts. He's not a God you worship through child sacrifice. He's not a God you have to appease. This God will send such abundance on their crops that they can do in six years what others would do in seven. That, that they can be provided for in those six years so much so that that seventh year they can just chill. They can relax. They can just eat whatever grows naturally. They can glean. It would turn everyone in Israeli society, everyone would be turned into what the poor have to be every year, which is gleaners. Those who go through and pick the remains of the fields, whatever grows. So it's teaching a lot to the nations that are watching. It's a very missional emphasis. This is the one true God. That's the purpose. That's what Abraham's offspring were called to do. They were called to be a blessing to the nations. They were called to reflect God's character to the watching world. In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 12. This is part of that. This is part of how that would work. Showing the world in an undeniable way that it's this Yahweh, not the gods that they serve, who is the one who truly controls whether it rains or whether the crops grow. So it's very much a, a huge statement. And, and it's not a perfect parallel, but to kind of give you an idea uh, in our society, since we are urban, uh, think about most of you in here probably have eaten at Chick-fil-A, right? And Chick-fil-A, whatever you think about fried chicken or vegetarianism or, or anything like that, uh, fast food, commercialism, regardless, Chick-fil-A does something that no other fast food restaurant does. They're, they close on Sundays. Yeah. Chick-fil-A does in six days what all the other fast food restaurants do in seven. 
And they do it specifically because of the founder, Truett Cathy, and his beliefs that Sunday should be a day of rest, day of going to church, blah, blah, blah. Well, they're pretty much the number one fast food restaurant in the country um, in terms of just their business model and their whatever. Other industries and other restaurants and other businesses, regardless of what they think about Chick-fil-A's politics, they look to them as, hey, they're doing something right. Right? It, it, people take notice, usually to try to emulate or try to get a bigger market share or whatever. So the point is not, what I'm not saying is God is blessing Chick-fil-A. Maybe he is. Or maybe the practices that they're doing are just really good because they flow with the creational aspect of this world that God intended. Or maybe a little bit of both. I don't know. But the point is that they're doing something that others are seeing and going, something's happening there. How can we, you know, how, can, how, how do we explain this? How can we emulate this? How can we whatever, whatever. That's just one example. It can be used in the business world when there are businesses that do things that do them ethically, but they do them with excellence. And you can kind of see that they're doing it right. And, and that's what people tend to emulate. So <clears throat> that aspect is, is kind of what's going on here in terms of God wants the, the nations to look. Israel is to be his kind of divine experiment, so to speak. To his, 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 like, everybody watch. This is the Petri dish. I'm going to grow my people, my little family of seed of Abraham, and they're going to be what all the world is enamored by. And that's what the prophets tell Israel over and over and over. When they fail to do it, they say, you've become a reproach. You've made God a reproach in the eyes of the world. So Ezekiel tells the people over and over. So the whole point is <clears throat> the nations are watching. So if Israel goes in and if they keep his commands and if they do this, then the very thing that gives them foundation as a society in the fertility land, Canaan, will be the thing that he controls, that he blesses. And that in and of itself will be a powerful witness to the world that's watching. If they do it. If they do it. He goes on in verse 8. Not only that, God's going to up the ante. Count off seven Sabbaths of years. So every seven years, we'll count off seven of those. So seven times seven, 49. So that the seven Sabbaths of years amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, that's Yom Kippur, we saw that a few chapters ago. On the day of atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the 50th year, and that'd be the start of the next set of 49s, but the 50th year, uh, consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a year of jubilee for you. Each one of you is to return to his family property and each to his own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow, do not reap what grows of itself, or harvest the untended vines. For it's a jubilee, and it's to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. In this year of jubilee, everyone is to return to his own property. If you sell land to one of your countrymen, or buy any from him, do not take advantage of each other. You're, you are to buy from your countrymen on the basis of the number of years since the jubilee. And he is to sell to you on the basis of the number of years left for harvesting crops. When the years are many, you can increase the price. And when the years are few, you can decrease the price. Because what he is really selling you 
is the number of crops. Do not take advantage of each other, but fear your God. I am the Lord your God. This is mind-blowing. In Israel, now God has not parceled out the land yet. He hasn't told them who, what tribe's getting what land or any of that. That won't happen until the book of Numbers. He's telling them right up front, listen, when you get in this land, when you start selling, and you know, and this is how you do, you'd sell land, and he's going to go into it in the next half of the chapter about why you'd sell land. But most of the time it was because of debt. Your crops aren't, don't fully yield what you thought they would, and so you have debt, and so maybe you seal or sell some of your land to pay off that debt or whatever. I mean, anybody in here in real estate knows about selling land. What God's telling Israel is, hey, here's, here's the thing. Every 50 years, all the land gets reset. Every 50 years, God wipes the board clean and you start over again. Once in every person's lifetime, all debts are remitted. All land that's been sold to pay for those debts is given back and it starts over. This is the purpose of the Jubilee year. And God said, hey, when you sell this land, what you're actually selling is not the land. Why? You don't own the land. God owns the land. You're a sharecropper. You own the harvests of the land that you work. And those are what you can sell. So somebody buys a tract of land with 50 years before the next Jubilee, the person selling that can charge them more because what they're buying are 50 crops, 50 harvests. If Jubilee is in two years and they sell the land, then they need to price it as two harvests. That's what they're buying. See, this is the thing. And this is, you hear this sometimes in pop preaching that, you know, well, God gave the land to Israel. People fight over the land in the Middle East. This is the promised land. This is the land of the Israelites. This is the land of Palestinians. This is the land of this, this is the land of that. The land is God's. He never, ever gave the land to Israel. Ever. He let Israel tend the land for him. He is the sovereign king of the land. So any buying and selling and trading, he's ultimately the one that parcels it out. And he sets it up so that every generation, it'll reset. And people have looked at this economically and they've seen a number of things that are pretty amazing about it. One is that it perfectly balances the concerns of socialism and capitalism. It perfectly balances those. Socialism says... Nobody owns anything. It's all everyone's property. So you don't get to choose what you sell and what you buy and where you go and all of that kind of stuff. I and mean, that's socialism takes it to its conclusion, logical conclusion. And that's wrong. God does give people ownership of some things, namely the crops and where they can harvest and things like that. And as we'll see, houses in walled cities, um, they can actually purchase and actually own. So it, it pushes against that idea of that socialist utopia where if nobody owns anything, then everybody owns everything. And God says, no, that's nonsense. You know, he's going to give land to tribes to, to administer and to work and to care for. And they can buy and they can sell and they can do all that. But it also goes against unchecked capitalism. Because unchecked capitalism, as we're seeing, will result in a very small percentage of people having control of a very large majority of stuff. And that will accumulate over the generations so that you will not be someone who has to work for your inheritance or your fortune. You can end up inheriting it and being born into billionaire status because of things that happened two, three, four generations ago. What this does is says that's not going to happen either. 
every 50 years, there's going to be a reset. So there was not going to be, if this were followed, generational crushing debt that keeps entire societies mired in poverty for two, three, four hundred years. And it's also not going to allow people through shrewd investing and, and being miserly and being, you know, good business people to accumulate more and more and more wealth and build up these, these, these fiefdoms, these, these domains that they rule over. In other words, one small group is not going to get to take over everything over generations at the expense of other people. So it does. It upholds the, the core concept. And it can only work in this setting because God is the one who's going to parcel out this land for Israel. So it's, it's, Israel has a unique role in being able to show the world once again the type of God that they serve and the type of society that he desires to exist in that time and in that place. The foundational lessons for it, there, there are tons of them, but this is what people have looked at, uh, even, even in completely secular politics. People have looked at this. There, there have been summits around the world on enacting a jubilee-type thing for third world nations that are just crushed under debt, that, that can't get out of the debt because of the, uh, how steep the interests are and how corrupt the economy has become and the society and the leaders and everything. And it's gotten to a point where you have countries like Democratic Republic of Congo, which has the most valuable resources on the entire planet. They should be the richest nation in the world, and it shouldn't even be close. But yet they're at the very bottom or near the very bottom because of the crushing debt and the colonialism and the corruption among leaders and tribal fighting and all of this kind of stuff, just because of sin. So this is a, one of the ways that God instilled in Israel that would mitigate against that. Now, here's the thing. It wouldn't do away with poverty. This is the thing. God, if you read his legislation, he always sets up to provide for the poor. But he always, his legislation assumes that there will always be some who are poor and some who don't have as much in this world's economy. I mean, Jesus flat out said it. There will, the poor will always be among you, told his disciples. They're always going to be poor. Because the world is so complex, people make good decisions, people make bad decisions. Some things are unpredictable about nature, about you know everything from the stock market to the agriculture and all this kind of stuff. There will always be people in need, but what God has set up is setting up in his people and in his word is a society should be a society in which all of those people who are in need can have those needs met by the people who aren't in need, enabling them to work and to build up for themselves what they need. And it'll always be in a state of flux. But we saw this, um, I think it was last week, is, is what God was doing, or a couple weeks ago, is, is God doesn't just mandate like what we would think of as wealth redistribution. It's not like, okay, you've got all this money, so because you're rich, you need to give all of it to this person. Actually, you need to disperse all of it to everybody. God never does that quite. But he does do something like that in terms of saying you've been blessed you need to make sure that the other people aren't being taken advantage of you need, it's on you to make sure that the wealth that i've blessed you with is being used to bless other people actively not just in a general sense but like actively and so he puts laws he puts safeguards in place um, and he says verse 70 do not take advantage of each other 
but fear your God. I am the Lord your God. Follow my decrees, be careful to obey my laws, and you will live safely in the land. Then the land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and live there in safety. Verse 20, you may ask, what will we eat in the seventh year if we don't plant or harvest our crops? Here's the key. I will send you such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. While you plant during the eighth year, you will eat from the old crop and will continue to eat from it until the harvest of the ninth year comes in. So what God's saying is, I, it, this, this takes faith. You know, giving takes faith. Tithing takes faith. Giving some, someone or giving to God money or resources that you can hold in your hand or that you can see or that you can write in your checkbook, giving that away takes faith. This is the kernel of truth that prosperity preachers grasp. They take it and run with it to the depths of hell. But there is a kernel of truth in it. And the kernel of truth is it does take faith to give of our resources. And if we do that, what God promises His people is He'll take care of them. He'll give safety. I'll give you safety. I'll give you the crops you need. Now, He doesn't say, I'll give you enough crops so you can build up bigger barns and keep storing more crops and build your empire. No, what does He say? I'll give you what you need to eat during those years to get you to the next time you need to start working again. Right? That's where the wealth and wealth people miss it. He doesn't promise the health and the wealth. He promises, I give you nourishment, I give you sustenance. Not necessarily going to give you wealth like we would think of. But I'll give you what you need and I'll make sure that you have enough. But he goes on to emphasize it. Uh, verse 23, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine. And you are but immigrants and my tenants. Or aliens, if you have an IV, and my tenants. You are, this is Israel, in the land of Israel, God's saying, you're immigrants. So, I don't really care what your politics are, this should come into something about how you look at immigrants. <laughs> in any land, I mean, we, we don't even have a divine right uh, like Israel had, and they're immigrants. So, again, God is, in, in, he, he is just hammering this point home. This is my land. I'm letting you into it. And I'm letting you into it for a reason. You're going to steward it. You're going to take care of it. That's what, All of this points back to Eden. All of this points back to the Garden of Eden. When God put man and woman in the garden, it says He put them to work and to take care of, to guard and to keep, are the words that are used. And God was the one that provided all that they needed. But they were put there to work and to tend and to, you know, the, the only thing that changed with the fall was that what was once a joy became a struggle. And the fear of not having enough crept into what was complete abundance. So God's sending Israel into the land. The land will hearken back to, will look back to Eden and what all of humanity once enjoyed and lost because of sin. But it will also, especially the jubilee and this idea of the setting free and the debts being forgiven. And if you're a slave, you know, in Israel, you can only be a slave for six years or seven years, six years, then you had to go free. Um, but if the jubilee was coming up, no matter how many years left, you could go free. That idea of radical grace and forgiveness 
undeserved, unmerited. You, don't, you can't help when you're born in relation to a Jubilee year. But, but there was an element of that radical undeserved grace mixed into the economy of Israel. And that, not just look back to the land looking back to what they lost in Eden, but that also looked forward to what God promised would one day be worldwide, which was the complete freedom and liberty. So it's no coincidence, Isaiah 61, when Isaiah is giving a vision of what the new creation will be, he uses the Jubilee. And, and, and talks about, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Well, that's what the Jubilee year was. That was the year of the Lord's favor. Proclaim freedom for the captives and sight for the blind. I and mean, he adds like, like, like healing into this concept of Jubilee freedom. Like freedom from sin and freedom from sickness and freedom from death. What's the first sermon Jesus ever publicly preached in Nazareth? Luke 4. He opens to Isaiah that passage about the Jubilee. And he says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Like Jesus' whole ministry was patterned after being the cosmic jubilee. So he would set people free from sin, from sickness, from leprosy, from death itself in Lazarus' case, and ultimately in his own case. So his ministry was the jubilee because he was doing what the prophets had been pointing forward to all along and saying, there's going to come a time when God's going to do for the world as a whole what he's doing in microcosm through Israel faithful Israel. Problem was Israel did not keep these decrees. Israel did not celebrate the Jubilee that we know of. We have no record of Israel ever celebrating the Jubilee. So it took a new Israel. It took a true Israel. It took the Israelite, Jesus himself, to actually do in full what Israel was called to do but never did. And so when we're reading this, we'll finish the next uh, half of the chapter next week, but when you're looking at the Jubilee and this, it has so much more to do with agriculture and economy. Yeah, there are good agricultural principles. Yeah, there are good economic principles. But all of it, again, all of it points forward to what God wants the world to be in its fullness in some way, shape, or form. And he's doing it through a little model, a little object lesson, a little children's sermon story known as the people of Israel and the tabernacle, and the sacrifices, and the land of Canaan that they're going into. But we are out of time, so have a great week. If you want some seconds, come and get some. Otherwise, see you next week.